Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 307 RPG Podcast. I'm Patrick. I'm Nolan. I'm Zach. Zach, before we go too far, I think we should take a minute to say we have a birthday boy in the room. It is Nolan's birthday today. Happy birthday, Nolan. Thank you. Birthday. (laughs) Zach's looking at me like, what the fuck are you talking about? I had completely forgotten. I am sorry. It's all right. Just another day. It is indeed Nolan's birthday today. And, you know, as we talked last week, you and your family are doing this whole not eating sugar and alcohol and stuff like that. So we happened to see your wife in the store the other day. And my wife went running up to her and go and says, what the fuck? Are you guys eating normally yet? How can we give Nolan alcohol on his birthday? That's awesome. Yeah, one more week. Ah, gotcha. Gotcha. So she's like, I plan these special whiskey drinks and God damn it. Next Aww. weekend. I will we'll let her know. Day. There we go. So I'm going to stop by for a power hour. Do like seven or eight shots, get to our respective beds and pass out because we're old now. There you go. Are you a birthday cake guy? Uh, no, not really. I don't Me know. Neither. You just make some cornbread and cover it in honey. I oh, no, that actually sounds good. Yeah, uh, yeah say, I'd, I'd, I'd much rather have some hot like ones, that. honey. And... Oh, yeah. A little bowl of chili. I mean, now we're just having a good meal. Can't have corn, but that's fine. You Fuck. can't have corn? Alcohol, corn, gluten, high processed soy, uh, artificial sweeteners, alcohol. Um, Notice he says alcohol twice. Alcohol twice, yeah. I can't remember what else is on there dairy so yeah okay yeah that's been interesting are you on an all meat and greens diet kind of it's not necessarily a diet it's more about finding out what you have food allergies to oh yeah and those are the most common things that people have issues with so next week i can grab one try it and see if it destroys me see what's up right on he's he's just gonna get i'm not necessarily doing it my wife is doing it and there's nothing like trying to do something like that while everybody around you is having like pizza so yeah. I figured we'll just all do it together. But that's perfectly fair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So, it is. I, I mean, it, I agree with you. It, it's super difficult when you're trying to do something like that. Um, as someone who has done it, and the rest of your family is like, meh. I'm hitting Wendy's, and you're like, oh. yeah. I would, I would kill somebody for a flour tortilla at this point. But yeah, exactly. it's getting better. A gluten-free stuff is horrible. Keto stuff is horrible. Um, but other than that, it's not too bad. The snacks are the hard part because you can't have snacks really. So lots of yeah, eggs, lots of that... spinach, lots of fruit, lots of veggies. You can do yeah, a whole lot of human civilization eggs. has advanced to the point where, at least in America, we don't have to eat the things that our ancestors had to eat. We only have to eat the things that we want to eat. And it turns out what we want to eat is fat and sugar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, sugar is in everything. But I did go from about 212 to 195 this morning. So yeah, maybe I had a sugar problem. Yeah, absolutely. I know that's definitely one of my biggest problems is sugar. And it's just, it's in so much stuff. I mean, Mm -hmm. it really is. So it's been fun. I've been making my own pasta sauce, been making my own salsas because that stuff has sugar in it. Um, Just getting creative. What kind of pasta sauce have you been making? Like marinara? 
Yeah, yeah, just and then just a bunch of veggies, and then I've got an immersion uh, blender, so then I can tomatoes, onions, veggies, peppers, and just puree the bejesus out of it to make a nice sauce. And so the only sugars you get are from, I mean, tomatoes, I guess, by nature are high in sugar, but nothing added to it. So right, and if you if you grab a can of like ragu or any other pasta sauce, it is loaded with sugar. Yeah, it's because they're cheap, and you can add sugar instead of basil or basil, as Gordon Ramsay would say. <laughs> Basil. So yeah, no, it's been it's been fun, interesting process. I'm curious to see um, what I have problems with afterwards, or if you had problems, you may not have had any problems. But the fact is, I mean, sugar's not good for any of us, right? No. And if if that is one of your things that because I know it's one of my things, I could freaking mow down on a box of Chips Ahoy in a heartbeat. However, um, sugar is. Sugar is probably the most detrimental thing you can eat. It does so much to your body. Like it affects like if you have a, a joint issue, it's going to hyper affect that. If you have other health issues, sugar is going to hyper affect it because it's not something refined sugar is what we should be talking about. Because um, the natural sugars you get out of fruits and vegetables and stuff like that are not the detriment uh, that you are. Yeah. Well, not how many bad. calories we just drink. So. You have a vanilla latte, you start your day with 300 calories, you know, yeah, that's basically sugar. Um, you have two beers, there's 240 calories. I mean, just taking out those 600 calories that you drink would cause you to lose weight in a week because you're technically right. eating under what you, you know. So that's basically a meal. But yeah, we we, we consume a lot of empty calories. And Stay lovey. <laughs> Yeah, I, say I will have a nice uh, keto friendly key lime something. Well, we went out and bought a bunch of meats and cheeses for D&D today because we figured oh, that would. Oh, wait, you can't have cheese. I will eat all the meats and yes. smell the cheeses because I miss cheese. You can have all the meats. I'm sorry. I didn't even think about the cheeses. We thought that was oh, safe. Perfect. Nope. Perfect. I appreciate it. Looking forward to it. Looking forward to D&D. Yeah. Getting back to some D&D and seeing if the death house finally kills you guys. According to all the text messages I've been seeing, you're planning on it killing you. Yeah, Death House. That's my character's new nickname. You're all going <laughs> to die to the Death House. There you go. All right. Well, let's jump into our topic because we are still continuing our look at uh, the One Ring. And actually, before we go too far, um, I don't know if you guys saw, I sent you a link yesterday with a bunch of stuff from Free League. I did see it. I have not been able to download it yet. Okay. Uh, I have a new phone and I have not signed into my email on it. Okay. So well, I have no I... idea what you're talking about. So... Sounds great. We'll skip that part and we'll go to the book. <laughs> okay. So we are still continuing our look at the one ring. This is a, you know, fairly large book that we're trying to work our way through. So it is taking us some time. We are at chapter six where we're talking about the adventuring phase. Correct. I believe so. Yep. Perfect. So let's let's just jump into it and talk about what exactly an adventuring phase is. And, you know, if you think about it in the, the simplest terms, an adventuring phase is everything you do in the game outside of combat and actually like sitting down and negotiating terms. Right. This is like when you're walking through the forest or you camped out in the mountain pass and suddenly the goblins you're in their back porch, you know, those kind of things. These are the things that just happen. These are all the scenes that happen in a game. Um, the book actually kind of talks about about how, you know, usually an adventuring phase is a gaming session. They recommend like three hours um, of gaming. Um, 
the 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 session is broken down to introduction scenes and end of session. So introduction. OK, guys, what did we do last week? Here's the setting. Let's play. And then all the scenes are what happened during the game. And then, of course, you wrap up at the end. Sometimes it's a cliffhanger like I love to do, or sometimes it's a natural end. So I don't know that there's a whole lot we need to talk about there. What, what do you guys think? I, I uh, think they tried to like gamify just the session just to let you know that like I think it's easy to be like, hey, we're in the f- adventuring phase. You're going to go be doing stuff. Yeah, it it seems I don't know. I like the idea of a lot of stuff that goes into the fight um, from that standpoint of just there are different objectives, I think, when it goes to a fight. Not always are you just, well, you around the corner and find some bad guys. And we can think of those things many times of there's a lot of hold the line moments. They're protecting somebody. There are a lot of things of, I think, like the troll cave where they're trying to protect Frodo or uh, during Helm's Deep when the wall gets broken up. You know, there is a brief moment of volley, but it does eventually come to a point where two armies are clashing. And so they, I think they do a pretty interesting job of, you know, there is going to be this opening ground where you have a moment to chuck a spear to throw something, but they're rushing you for the most part. It ends up being close quarters. Right, which is a great way to interrupt your adventuring phase and move into the combat phase, um, which we're going to jump right into because there really isn't a whole lot to say about the adventuring phase. And Nolan, I like that what you're just talking about there, because that's exactly it. If you think about the movies in particular, you can see the setup of the combat phase, right? Like in, in Moria where they know the trolls are coming, they look out the door, they're like, Oh, they have a cave troll. Uh, and then the arrow hits the door and they know that they're ready to, to engage. Everybody takes a stance and everybody gets ready. We see those who have uh, ranged weapons firing off their shots before they hand hand-to-hand combat starts and then they engage in hand-to-hand combat which is really if you think about it how this book sums up combat we start with like nolan said we start with the opening volley which is your chance for if you have a ranged weapon be it a bow and arrow a thrown spear a throwing axe either of those things you get a chance to make those attacks before the main combat ever begins depending on how far away they are in your range you may get one or two attacks if you have like a bow and arrow um i really liked that idea what did you guys think of that one well i think it kind of sets um i think that's probably why like the writers of rohan were so deadly and why the elves were so deadly because of their archery um, we see that in The Hobbit as well as like the elves were super deadly because they had that ability to train and hone their skills with the bow. Even so to a point where in The Hobbit, the dwarves created machines just to get them close. Um, and so I think that's one of those, you don't have a lot of the bad guys are highly skilled. Most of them are brute strength and they overwhelm you with numbers. And I think that was kind of the, they are just, waves and waves of enemies there is no finesse to them and so i thought that was kind of an interesting take on the the way they do this combat of it really is overwhelming numbers usually is what causes the orc army to win because yeah they're just mean old monsters so what are your thoughts on opening volleys i don't necessarily i don't i don't necessarily like the idea but i think that um in aggregate with everything else that we're going to talk about in combat i think it it's a i think it's really clear about how the developers wanted combat to go it's not a war game 
It doesn't even have its roots in wargaming like D&D does. It's just like... Yeah, you get your opening volley. Of course you do. You brought a ranged weapon. All right, and then you move on. And so I think it's kind of not about, like, getting bogged down in rules or different abilities. It's just, yeah, make your ranged attacks, and uh, then we'll move on to the next person. Well, I... I... There's something about like take D&D, for example, um, I, I play a character whose primary weapon is a sword, but he happens to also carry a hand crossbow. And yeah. I think especially if you see the enemy coming, you know, they're going to be attacking you. Why couldn't you pop off one shot, drop your hand crossbow and draw your weapon? Exactly. Why wouldn't you be allowed to do that? And I actually I like how they they included that. I thought that was a really interesting take on it. Uh, we see it in the movies where, again, you know, going back to the Moria scene where we had archers firing through the holes in the door, killing orcs before they ever got into the room um, and then dropping their bows and pulling their swords. So I really enjoy the fact that they included that. Yeah, I think. I mean, it does. It It makes complete sense, especially once we start getting into like how the close combat round kind of works. Um, it This might be your only chance to use your ranged weapon. Yes. You know, if there's four of you and there's five enemies, you're guaranteed to have someone on you. Yes. Not, yes. not in like a, the enemies will do that. That's literally how the game works. And we'll talk about that in the close quarters round next. Right, but, right. But this, yeah. As far as this game is concerned, you might get one chance to use your bow. And also, I'll just remind everyone who's listening, if you roll a 10 or a 12 on your D12, the monster dies. Like, the chances of them succeeding on an armor save is incredibly low. So everyone with a ranged weapon, that's one extra chance. That's a free chance to kill. Right. And everybody, the other thing to keep in mind is when it comes to the opening volley, everybody gets it. So if, gets if, it. if the opponents are carrying ranged weapons, they are going to fire an opening volley as well. Mm -hmm. um, if they're not carrying ranged weapons, well, then you're just going to shoot at them. Uh, so it's important to keep that in mind, which is why, I mean, they do talk about like, which is why the stances are so important, which we're going to get to in just a second. And they do talk about like, okay, you went, you know, kind of defensive and you just pulled up your shield and now you're just, you know, protecting yourself until they get here. Uh, they, they do mention those kind of things. And I, and, and I like that. Um, I don't know. I, I, th I thought this was really interesting. So, but it is a very short thing. Everybody gets an opening volley. If they're carrying a ranged weapon, you may get more than one. If your weapon has the range to do it, uh, before you get into the next part of combat, which is the close quarter rounds. One of the things that threw me, and I wanted to throw this out to both of you is there really is no initiative here. Like we're so used to rolling initiative in our, in our role-playing games to see who goes first. There is no initiative here. So I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Well, I, I think going by based upon what you're doing, I think makes sense ish. <laughs> um, I, I always imagine like if I'm in close combat, the guy in the, in the rear going last seems kind of interesting. Cause it's like, well, wouldn't the arrow get there while you're running in? But once the fight actually happens, I imagine things are moving a lot quicker. Whereas the person in the rearward stance is going to be aiming 
right? So I think that kind of makes sense. But yeah, so you base your, when it's your turn to act, all players resolve their actions in stance order. Uh, heroes with the forward stance going first, progressing through those in the rearward until they have acted. Um, so I, I like that. I think that's interesting because it is kind of at that point, um, the people in the middle of it are just swinging to swing, whereas the archer in the back is being calculated with their shots. So I, it seemed flavorful. Zach? Yeah, um, I think the combat has more in common with like Final Fantasy than it does with Dungeons and Dragons, which is like, the, here's the enemy. All right, take your turn. Now it's your turn. And the combat, from what I can really tell, is designed to get a lot of extraneous rules out of the way. And D&D run, and Pathfinder runs into this issue where if you're not playing with a map, some of the rules are just completely pointless. Why, why bother having like 60, 70, 80 feet away where you can just be like, hey, the monsters will get to you next turn. Well, and like, who cares and stuff like that is. takes a lot out of it, too. Yeah, I mean, like... A 15-foot cone, and you're like, I can't see that without a map sometimes, so... Right, at that, at that point, the DM is just saying, based on how things are going, you can either hit two of them, or you can hit three, but you have to hit a friend as well. Like, they're just providing options spell and... Spell Shaper. That's right, best ability makes, in the game. And, easy. and so... If you're not playing with a map, now you're kind of like having to adjudicate rules and bargain with the DM. And since this game doesn't use a battle map, why have all that crap in there? So they do mention um, that they do talk about that once combat begins, they they recommend you pull out tokens to indicate mm -hmm. where, where your character is, be it a model, be it cardboard cutout, be it a, a, a penny, because Lord knows we've done that plenty of times. Um, mm -hmm. So they do mention that. So there there is the, you know, yeah, you could use a map if you need to. Um, maybe we should look at the starter set because I bet you there's some maps that are combat based in there. Um, but you're not wrong. And, and I like, so let's real quick, just to explain how the combat phase or the combat sequence works. Cause this is the close quarter round. Sorry. So in the close quarter round, all your company chooses a stance. So you go around the table, everybody chooses what stance they're going to be in. The stances are uh, forward, uh, open, which is defensive and or range slash rearward. So every stance has something to it. Um, like the forward stance is like you're ready to fight, you're ready to engage, you're you're in a true fighting stance and you get a bonus to it. Open stance is you are open, you're wide, you're swinging wildly, you're just doing what you have to. And if I remember correctly, there's actually a disadvantage, like the, the attackers get an advantage hitting you. That's forward. Uh, in forward or stance, you get an extra dice for your rolls, but all attacks against you get an extra dice as well. Okay. And so if you're... If two forward stance opponents are attacking each other, they both get the bonus. So it's two dice. Um, got you. Got you. Open, open so stance is just a normal balanced stance. Defensive. Um, everyone loses a dice when they attack you, but you lose a dice as well. Um, gotcha. And then rearward is the range stance. Okay. So I had that a little confused there. Thank you for the clarification. So anyway, you go around the table and you choose stances. Uh, then it's engagement. All combat, all combatants in close quarter are now going to be paired up with an opponent. 
Mm-hmm. Um, if there's more opponents than there are uh, heroes, the the lore master can choose that they're either standing back uh, or they're taking ranged shots. Correct. Yep. Or they can put two on uh, on right. one hero. Um, and then you have the action resolution, which all actions of, of co- all combatants are resolved in stance order. And this is this is the, what we we're talking about, why there's no initiative. So then you move around the table. Player heroes always go first, always, period. Mm-hmm. So we move around the table. Let's say the two of you are in a forward stance. We just you. I, I would assume the best way to handle this is go ahead and both of you roll your dice. Oh, you hit. Great. I don't think there's a point in saying, okay, Nolan, you roll, roll your damage. Okay, Zach, you roll, roll your damage. Because at this point, you can speed through the combat a little bit and say both of you roll. Okay, you hit. Let's do the damage great. And move on. Because the damage isn't quite like D&D where you have to roll 27 dice plus smite plus this plus that plus that. And suddenly you're doing a million damage. No, you don't have to because you only get two wounds. Yep. My, the great axe deals four damage. Or like maybe right. I think it's like six. Right. Like it deals six damage to the enemy's endurance. You don't. And the target number is that you need to roll is always on your character sheet. Yep. Like once it's your turn, you know, everything right here. You can just roll, be like, hey, I have. You know, I know that I succeeded. I deal four damage. So then you go to or you go through the stances. Uh, so you, again, you start with forward, you work your way down, rearward going last. So that's that archer in the back trying to pick out a shot. And I imagine that makes a little bit of sense because melee is moving back and forth and they're doing their best, like Nolan said, to line up a shot and then fire. And then you go to the, the enemies, the enemy combatants, then they go. Um, now, we're kind of talking before we get started recording here. I suppose you could just roll one die for every for all the enemies. That seems a little unfair. Oh, look, you all got hit. Yeah, um, I do think it's probably best that you roll a die for each individual. Um, but you can have four different 12 D12s if you have four players. Sorry. And roll that and just indicate hopefully they're all different colors and indicate who gets hit with what. Very briefly, that's combat. That's combat. And it, the game is very clear. Everyone gets a dance partner. Yes. If there's four players and there's four orcs, there's no teaming up. Right. Everyone gets an orc. Yep. They're very, very clear about that. Nolan, what, do you think that's that's a quick down and dirty summary of combat? Yeah. Seems like it. I think there's different things that can happen to you, but that's, I mean, as we get through, that's that's pretty much it. People who are closest go first. People in the range go last. Uh then the enemies get to go. Now there is times again, if you're ambushed, they will get their ambush around. Um, mm-hmm. If you fail your perception checks, basically. But other than that, yeah, it, it's it's heavily favored into the fact that you need to win fast and quick because the longer it goes on, the worse it's going to be for you. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly it. And 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 there is, like Nolan said, there are those, those things that, that will affect it a little bit, that being the ambush, you know, be it you or the enemies, whomever is going to get the ambush. Um, so that will, and what is that, like a free attack? They just get the attack and then you start the combat round? Uh, yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. So then, yeah, so... So that at that point, like you, you have to do your action resolution, which if if somebody got hit, this is this is where it gets scary is when you start getting hit, when people start taking damage, because you don't last very long in this game. No. And and we've talked about it before. And I think I I keep bringing it up because of how important it really is. If you roll a 12 or a 10, 
it's basically a critical hit. And then there's a very low chance of negating it. And if you fail to negate the crit, you take a wound. Most enemies don't have a single wound. They just immediately die. Player characters get one wound and the next hit kills them. Yeah, or they're dying. Or they're dying. Yeah, it's... And like I've said before, two chances on a d12, that's one in six. Right. You can roll it. You can roll a normal dice and count how many times a six comes up. It happens a lot, especially once we start rolling two, three, four dice in a in a turn. Like combat's really deadly. Yes, it is. So, in the case of, and we've kind of touched on this very lightly, but in the case where there are more enemies than heroes, there are steps that you can follow that are written in the game. Step one, the lore master assigns one opponent to each unengaged player hero fighting in a close combat stance. So everybody, like Zach said, everybody gets a dance partner. Step two, then for each remaining foe, the lore master chooses between engaging a player hero in close combat stance who is already engaged or standing back possibly to attack using ranged weapons. Enemies who stand back to use a ranged weapon may attack a player, may attack any player hero involved in the fight. Now, I think it's being very specific by saying involved in the fight. So if there is a player hero that for whatever reason is not involved in the fight, they do not get attacked. Is that how you guys are reading that? I I think so. I think I think the intent is that if the player characters are falling back, that those that those characters don't get attacked. Yeah. Um, I don't think there's like the arrow in the back thing. I think. Uh, that was my interpretation that if if your player is retreating, let him retreat. Nolan, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think we see until you're overwhelmed um, very rarely in the early parts. It does, you know, Frodo pick up a weapon unless he has to. He's mostly just trying to hide until they get overwhelmed. Right. So um, I do like that idea of um, giving you an out um, from the standpoint of, you know, they, you can assume a rearward stance and then choose to escape. No role is required. And the adversaries who choose to stand back thus remain unengaged. So, um, it, I don't know. I think giving you a chance for bad things to happen and collect your thoughts, it's, it's pretty, pretty okay. So equally, they talk about if there's more player heroes than, um, than enemies. And again, there's two steps that you need to follow. Player heroes in a close combat stance choose an unengaged adversary to face from among those introduced by the lore master as eligible targets. If there are not enough free enemies to engage, player heroes in close combat left without an adversary must engage an enemy already engaged by a, another player hero. So if you're going to be in combat, you will be in combat. Yeah. Um, step two, if one or more of the company is fighting in rearward, that's the ranged attack. It is possible that there will be enemies left when everyone fighting in close combat has engaged an adversary. If this happens, the lore master chooses whether the spare, I love that spare enemies engage a player here who is already fighting in a close combat stance or stand back to attack a, with a ranged weapon. Enemies who stand back to use a ranged weapon may attack any player hero involved in the fight. So if you're rearward, you can either attack those that are already involved in combat or you can attack those that are, in this case, in their rearward stance. Yeah. 
So it sums it up really quick. If you're going to be in the combat, you are going to be in the combat. And as you do the combat as well, there are things that you can do in combat that will bring skills into. So it's not just necessarily mm-hmm. hack and slash, but you roll, I go, you roll, I go, hey, I still stand. There are things that you could do to make combat speed up to protect your friends. Um, there are combat tasks as well. Yep. Yeah, and, and your stance will give you a combat task. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's other stuff that you can do. It's not just swinging back and forth, but... Hmm. So, Nolan, you want to talk to us about the the combat tasks? Yeah. Uh, so some of the examples that they give here is uh, if you're in a forward stance, you can intimidate the foe. Brave warriors fighting a forward stance can attempt to intimidate their foe, make them waver, break, or even flee. To do so, the acting player makes an awe roll as the main action for the round. On a successful roll, the enemy's morale has been shaken, and all opponents with might one are made weary on their next attack roll. If the roll produces a single success, then all adversaries with might two suffer the same penalty. If the roll produces two successes or more, the penalty applies to all adversaries in the fight. I like, um, just from that standpoint, I like the idea of this momentum going. Good rolls aren't just more dead. It starts to affect the entire uh, army, right? And and I think we see th- one of their examples is Azog killing Nain. Um, you know, he rolls, he does a piercing blow, he cuts off his head, it affects people. Right? So, uh, open stance, you get rally comrades. Uh, and this one here, uh, fighters keeping an open stance are always heedful of their surroundings and may attempt to rally their comrades when the battle is wearing them out. Only one player hero may choose rally in any given round, so make it in heart and roll as a main action. Uh, on a successful roll, all members of the company fighting in a forward stance gain 1D on their attack rolls for the following round. If the roll produces a single success, then all those fighting in open stance. If the uh, roll produces two successes or more, the stance applies to all player heroes fighting in close combat. So you can very much build a character who plays in the open stance, who is a captain or a leader, uh, kind of not necessarily calling out shots, but kind of in that stand giving people, you know, a bless or an advantage type situation on the moment. And I think that makes combat a lot more fun too, because it isn't just a back and forth hack and slash. Uh, protective stance, you can make a battle roll to uh, protect a person or hero fighting in close combat, which I think that would give you a nice, uh, not necessarily back to backfield, but Gimli charging in going, you know, crazy or Aragorn and Boromir, you know, one's open, one's defensive protecting the king. You know, you can kind of get these moments of back and forth between a couple of characters. Uh, Rearward stance gets a prepared shot. Um, Make a scan roll as your main action. On a successful roll, the attacker gains 1D on their next range attack, plus another 1D for each success icon rolled. Again, bringing skills into combat, I think, is something that should be happening more often in any game because then it doesn't feel like, oh, well, this only matters now and this only matters. Now it's it's still important of how you built your character on day one. I am really good at talking to people. I'm really good at inspiring the party. I can play the loot while you know we're at camp and everybody feels better and they heal faster. Well, now I can also take that same skill of uplifting people's morale and put it in combat and everybody just fights better when I'm around because they're fighting for a reason, right? And that could be, you know, Frodo goes down and it's one of those things of, you know, everybody instantly picks up the fight. You see everybody kick it into another level. You know, is that some sort of inspiration or, uh, you know, I think that adds to the moment. And I think, like, for some characters, having a skill that you can use in combat is going to be a big deal. 
Because if you're a hobbit, you have a strength of two. And so when you're making a check, you have to get an 18. If you only have one dice in your sword, you can't succeed. Right. You know? So it's like, why would I... Why? I mean, there's always a one in six chance that you just automatically hit, but why would I do that when I can roll four dice to try and give everyone else an extra dice? Right? It's like, you know, if, if you've got a strength of two, it's like, why am I even fighting? You know? In, I'd like, yeah, I'll just stick in the rearward stance and I'll hang out and then I'll keep using my skills so everyone in the front line can have an extra dice. Because it's not automatic. You still have to like roll and use these skills. But I think these are the other things that you can do. Right. Okay. So let's talk this. So we've engaged in combat. Everybody has been assigned an enemy. Everybody has chosen their stance. Now we are going to actually attack our enemy. We're going to try to do some damage. So the first thing that everybody is going to do if you're in that forward stance is you're going to make your attack roll. Attack rolls is based off the proficiency of the weapon, correct? Mm -hmm. So you look at your strength target number modified by the parry number of the opponent that you're attacking and roll the dice. Yep. So the lore master will let you know parry three. So you take your strength target number, which if it was like 12 because you're really strong, you add three from the parry and now you know your target number is 15. That's all the math you got to do. Yep. And when it comes to your combat for proficiency, so if you're using an axe. I know there's a chart here. It's yeah, it's like you'd have like three. In your proficiency, that's three D6s that you're adding to your D12. Right. So if you're proficient in axes, right, you're going to add that. So then you make your roll. Uh, Again, it's, you know, the difficulty of the roll, sorry, is uh, made by adversaries against player heroes. uh, Equal to target heroes parry score. Sorry, what am I reading? Why am I confused? So once you score your attack... Uh, a successful attack roll inflicts damage on its target uh, in the form of endurance loss. So that first hit is going to cause you to lose endurance based on the weapon used. Uh, it may inflict ind- additional special damage type based on the quality of success of the roll. Uh, attacks may cause more long-lasting injuries if a piercing blow is, is scored. Uh, thinking about a Morgul blade here, right? Mm-hmm. So, Okay. I've rolled, I've hit, I've done damage. What happens next, Zach? It's the next person's turn. Okay. Let's say it's the second time I've hit you. Um, uh, so when you lose endurance, um, every character has a load. It's the amount of weight that they're carrying. If your endurance drops below your weight limit... Um, then all of your attacks are made uh, are ill-favored and ones, twos, and threes are zeros instead. Okay. So as you lose endurance, you might also have to drop things. Like you might have to remove your helmet because it's too heavy and now you've got less armor. And then you get hit again and now you have to drop your axe and pull out a smaller weapon because the axe is too heavy for you to use. So there's still, it's not just crit fishing. Like there's, you get worse as you get hit. So you go from having your normal rating to weary to weary, to finally yeah. dropping down. Yeah. So and if your endurance hits zero, you, you get wounded. And once you're wounded, that's when 
your potential for death is high. Yep. Two wounds and you die. And so it should it should be noted that if your endurance is zero and then you're wounded, the next hit on you is a wound. It is not, yep. you know, as long as it does damage, it is not a, well, it's going to go through my endurance first. No, you, it's like it's like in D&D, you're making death saving throws and somebody hits you and oh, look, an automatic death saving throw. Yep. Yeah, just one, two and you're dead. Yep. So, and luckily, like most enemies deal like three or four damage, and the lowest amount of health you can have is 18. So, there's a good chance that you can take four or five hits. But you sure don't want to. That's not a lot. Nope. So, there are some things that you can do to help mitigate some of that damage. Nolan, can you talk to us about knockback? Sure. Sorry, I was reading. No, you're good. Uh, let's see where we're at. Page 98. Sorry, my glasses is time. Okay, um, so when a melee or range attack roll succeeds, the target suffers an immediate loss of endurance equal to the damage rating of the weapon used. Um, so with, oh, that's endurance loss. Um, so sometimes an attack is so powerful that a fire prefers to roll with the punches and reduce the force of the blow by giving ground. Once each round, players can have the endurance loss caused by a successful attack, rounding fractions up by choosing to be knocked back. They will spend their next main action recovering their fighting position. Adversaries cannot choose to be knocked back. So this is something that only heroes can do. Mm -hmm. And it gives you an opportunity to, as you're hit and things are going bad, now all of a sudden you've kind of uh, you've taken those four hits, and now you're you know you're two away from certain death. It's time to just start giving up some ground. Yeah, and you do have to use your main action to get back in the fight. But if it was two on one, you know, um, and you think your friend is about to solve this problem for you, why not get yeah. knocked back? Why not take half damage for this attack and hope that uh, Boromir steps up for the final blow? Okay, so let's talk about special damage. Zach, you want to lead us through that? Yeah, so you have your um, your success die, which are the D6s. If they come up as a 6, then you can spend that 6 to activate special things. And it depends on the weapon that you're wielding. So there's like heavy blow, like I get at least 1 6 and I successfully hit. Then I just deal an extra amount of damage equal to my strength. And that's it. Gotcha. So, and there's also like um, any combat weapon can fend off. Bows, spears, and swords can use pierce, where they add a number to the d12 roll. And if that takes you above a 12, it's now a piercing blow. So tell us about piercing blows, because those can be pretty deadly. A piercing blow is the critical hit. If you roll a 10 or a 12 on your success die, you automatically, or your, um, your feet die, the d12, it automatically hits. And then whoever is hit has to roll their armor rating. Like if you have two, it's which in any roll, you roll a d12, and your armor rating is how many d6s you add to that roll. If you fail the target number, you take a wound. Which, as we've discussed, wounds are not something you really want to take. Enemies don't have wounds. They just die. Enemies don't have wounds. They just, they're just dead. They just die. Um, like, I, I keep harping on it, like, because I'm trying to express just how fast combat can go. Where you are one 
dice roll, you've got a one in six chance of taking the enemy out immediately. So well, I do want to. We see that with just about anything in the movie, right? Mm-hmm. Seven dwarves and a hobbit and Gandalf running through, you know, goblin caves, and it's just decapitation after decapitation. They like roll a rock, and thirty-seven goblins die. Like, <laughs> yeah, I think the highest armor that uh, an enemy has is is three, but like the target numbers for these weapons are really high. Like, even a mm-hmm. long sword is, like, the target number is 16, you know? And anyone who's tried to get a 16 on 3d6s knows that's really hard. Yes, absolutely. Like, you... It can go really bad really quickly. I wanted to bounce back real quick and talk about... Uh, because this is something that I see us get confused in D&D a lot. And that's what actions you can take during a combat round. Uh, and I know this is yeah. backpedaling just a little bit, and I'll be very brief here. Every player hero gets a main action. Your main actions are things like uh, recovering your position after a knockback. So if you get knocked back, you have to use your main action to recover your position. Uh, you're recovering your weapon, helm, or shield that was previously dropped carrying a fallen comrade to safety, moving across the battlefield, and so on. Uh, secondary actions are usually actions that are really quick, um, and things like advancing or retreating while fighting. So I'm going to attack and then move back. Uh, mm-hmm. Trying to locate someone on the battlefield, I'm going to attack and look for someone. And notice, I, I think it's interesting that they specify looking for someone on the battlefield. Because if you think about combat, if you're going to take a minute to look, that's, you know, that that is something that you actually have to physically do. You actually have to. I shouldn't say physically. It, it You commit yourself to looking and um, drawing a weapon and removing a helm or dropping a shield uh, to to reduce your load. So those are just some of the things that they put out there to specify that these are the actions and and secondary actions that you can take during combat. I, I don't want to say that this loose is uh, this list is all inclusive. So make sure you work with your lore master on that. Would you guys agree? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think they're more like those are suggestions, not the list. Because like I've said, you've got your skills that you can use. All right. So let's talk about what happens if we get wounded. And I've been passing this off to you guys. So I guess I'll jump in here and talk about the wounded section. Um, So again, as Zach says, when an adversary takes damage, they're dead. You don't need to worry about it. They're just dead. When they 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 take a wound. Yeah, when they take a wound. Sorry. When a player heroes are wounded for the first time, they immediately check the wounded box on their character sheet and then proceed to roll on the wound severity table using a feet die to determine the extent of their injury. Um, And again, Zach has been harping on this. It can be just, well, that was the wound. As seen under resting on page 71, player heroes whose wounded box is checked recover endurance slowly. Players who are wounded a second time, they received a wound when when their wounded box is already checked, see their endurance drop to zero, they fall unconscious and are now dying. A second wound is not recorded on the character sheet and the severity roll is skipped because, well, you're dying. Player heroes may reduce the severity of their injury with a healing roll. Player heroes who are not unconscious may attempt the, uh, the roll themselves. A successful healing roll reduces the severity of the injury by, by one day, plus one day for each icon scored. Is that what is the T icon, Zach? I don't remember. Uh, it's a six. Okay. It's a six on your D6. To a minimum of one day. 
Each hero may be administered um, a successful first aid only once. A failed healing roll cannot be repeated until a day has passed. So there is no, oh, well, I failed at that. Let me try again. Nope, you failed. You can try again tomorrow. Yeah. Wound severities are listed uh, from Eye of Sauron, which is a grievous injury. You are knocked unconscious with zero endurance and are now dying. So if that first hit hits you, it could be immediately you're just down. Mm -hmm. Uh, One to ten. Severe injury, the value indicates how long it'll take to for the injury demand expressed in days. Uh, and then, uh, is that the staff of Gandalf? Is that what they're using? Yep, that's a 12. Yeah. Moderate injury, the blow received was violent enough to expose you to risk of worse consequences if injured again, but no real lasting damage was inflicted. At the end of the combat, you will recover fully in a matter of hours. Remove the wounded checkbox. So that's a, that's a good one. Whereas the eye of Sauron's, you know, devastating. And then, you know, it talks about how it will take you several days to recover. There is no, well, we're just going to take a long rest and be fully healed. No, it could be five or six days before you're finally healed from that wound that you took. And, and you need to be careful for, because you are wounded if you get into another combat. Yeah, it could to a maximum of 10 days before you lose the wounded status. Yeah. And now before and so, you heal, before you just lose the wound and then you can heal. Right. So it's it's important to remember that your characters, although they are heroes, are kind of fragile. Yeah, I think that's why there's such an emphasis on the fellowship phase. Because you're going to have to actually spend some time. Healing like you're going to have to hang out in Rivendell for a while, right? If I'm not mistaken, in the Lord of the Rings, they're in Rivendell for a couple months, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, in fact, I, as I mentioned earlier, I'm I'm reading The Hobbit, and I know that they stayed in Rivendell for 14 days. And so I was going to say, too, as you get your virtues and stuff like that, as well as being the, the races, there's a bunch of stuff that helps with your combat as well. So, again, it isn't just a back and forth. Um, there are certain things. Dwarves, uh, one of their things is... Uh, add two perioreating when fighting underground or otherwise cramped quarters like inside buildings. So lots of flavor to be had as you're going through these here. Um, Stoneheart, Dwarves, uh, all your protection rolls are favored as long as you're not miserable. Um, You are a little bit tankier than, (laughs) you know, first thing. Um, But again, a a couple of bad rolls is going to give you a bad time. Um, But... You are you are a hero for all intents and purposes in this, and you are going to feel strong cleaving through swarms of goblins. And I don't know it. It seems like it is kind of a no must, no fuss. Tell a little story, kill a bunch of goblins, and and move on. It's not getting bogged down in the rolls. I don't see combat going hours and hours, which we have seen in other games. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There are complications and advantages that you can have uh, different things like terrain and stuff and how that will affect how you roll. There is I mean, there's a lot more to combat than just the simple things that we're talking about. And that is that is important that as you play the game or as you read through the game, getting ready to play it, that you take a minute to go through this. Um, There's things that you can do, like Nolan has talked about the the combat tasks that you're capable of doing, depending on your stance. Uh, Things that, again, Nolan talked about, like your the, the type of player you're playing can affect combat. There's things that you need to keep in mind. What we're talking about is just the down and dirty nitty gritty of combat. This is how it works. There are things that will modify that. 
There's a reason why you can't like create scenarios to up the tension, up the drama. Like I could think of like you're being ambushed and the enemies are in entrenched uh, positions that are higher ground. And it might take a while for you to go get to them. You know, yep. do you retreat? Do you just try and climb up the embarkments? Like, and this is a simple thing I came up with off the top of my head real quick. Like, there's all kinds of things that you can add in there. You know, like, hey, uh, they're going to keep coming through this door unless one of you tries to hold it close. Right. Hold the door. Yeah. So we're just getting in the nitty gritty of how this book works. But I think there's a lot of stuff that you can kind of throw in there just to make things more tense. Yeah. Yeah. So we move on from combat to the council phase, uh, which is, I mean, <laughs> you really think about it. It's the council and Rivendell, right? Yeah. I think it's the gamified. It's talking, but combat. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Because it talks about the different ways that you're going to go through it. Uh, <laughs> set the resistance of how hard it's going to be to negotiate the things that you're wanting to get done. But yeah, this is this is where you find out information. I think we've seen some of this. I mean, again, if you got if you're in a courtroom battle in D&D, &D, instead of making a initiative check, I would probably make somebody make like a perception check to see who talks first or, you know, a, a performance to see how, you, you know, I think there's ways to do this. This here just puts it into the game that there are going to be this is this is where the person steps up that maybe was just throwing rocks in the background of combat and is going to carry you to victory um, by getting a little bit of extra help. And I think people in this era, again, are, it's not a good time in the world. So people are questioning everything. There are movements and, and hints and rumors and people aren't as trustworthy. So you are going to need to, again, persuade people, um, talk kindly. I mean, you see how even the people trying to do well by people don't trust Gandalf at all. Like when he even rolls through Hobbit, it's air quotes, one of the friendliest places on the planet, you know. So, well, because he always he did seem trouble. very strange. He does seem like a troublemaker to me. He's totally a troublemaker. He was rather um, small. And he but did I one thing with Bilbo that one time. That's right. <laughs> but, uh, but I, I think about a council phase being like Thorn and Thranduil, right? And, or, and specifically talking about the movies here uh, and how poorly that goes. You know, yeah. or or, yeah, that's or another council phase. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Another council phase could be when they're gathering at um, uh, Erebor because they feel like they've been betrayed by the dwarves. And you have this council of Gandalf, Thranduil, and Bard trying to negotiate with Thorin, which goes poor, poorly and ends up in a big war. So council phases have their cause and effect. And there are different skills that you can use. I like the idea of using your riddle skill to just put together tidbits of information as you're talking to someone and it like, Oh, you know, suddenly you have that epiphany of something dawns on you. Like, Oh, this is what they've been talking about the whole time kind of thing. And it's There's, also your ability to say, we're going on a quest is going to involve a mountain and not have the Elrond look at you and be like, you're going to go to see smog, aren't you? And you're like, oh, I didn't do very good at my riddle check. Right. Yeah. So you can hide. <laughs> that the was good. <laughs> I like that. That was good, Nolan. Oh, yeah. I'm not an idiot, guys. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't. You got, yeah, okay. listen. We have an adventure in Balsam now. I think this is also if you have some players who are maybe coming from a board game perspective or a video game and they're not really 
use or comfortable or even just don't have any interest in like speaking in character and trying to whittle and wheel and deal this is a nice easy way of just being like hey these guys don't like you so it's high resistance introduce yourselves okay and then tell them what you want and use some skills to do it and then if you succeed then the lore master tells you the consequences of it like you could just you could be done in three minutes if right. you really wanted to, you could be like, okay, we, we don't need to role play this out. I just want to know, does this stupid map, is East up on this stupid map or not? Or is it an old-fashioned map? And it's like, okay, we don't need that, but Elrond doesn't like you. So it's Resistance 10, introduce yourself, roll Persuade and see if he'll tell you. Okay, all right, you know what? Elrond just wants you to leave, yes. The top of the map is east. So I do like the idea. There's this little box, this, this sidebar here, where they talk about awarding effective role playing during the council <laughs> phase. I really like this because it could be, I mean, we've seen that in, in any of our role playing games where maybe probably not dropping them correctly. And you're both, all of you are like, we don't know what the fuck's going on. We're just going to roll a die. Oh, look, you scored Great. Uh, you you figured it out. Or there's those times where like somebody will roll a die because they're lost, but somebody else is like, no, this is exactly what they're talking about. And and they talk about how if you have that good role playing going on, you need to give equal weight to both. Let the role playing naturally happen and let that, you know, all the information come out that way. Or if there's a, a die roll that because it needs to be happened, let it come out that way. Um, there's things that you can do to allow, like in this case, they talk about if the role play is really good, you can add extra dice to their skill roll, and, and which is always a positive thing. So if the role playing is happening, let it happen um, and, and award your players, uh, you know, for having really good role playing. And, and that's good game design, right? You want to incentivize yeah. behaviors that you want to see. You don't want to punish behaviors that you might not, that you don't want to see. Because this, this shows players what they should be trying to get to. Rather than just being like, no, you didn't do the right thing. So you just in, immediately fail or you lose dice because that, that doesn't provide direction. But at the same time, you don't have to. So then the last section is all about the journey phase. We are going on an adventure. Here we go. What do we do here? I mean, you set a journey path, you make marching rules, and then you in, and then you end the journey. Okay. Three steps. Let's, let's talk about the marching rules, the journey rules. So the journey rules, you have a guide. So I think of like in the case of the Hobbit, Gandalf, for the most part, this person is in charge of making all your decisions. Or actually, let's simplify it even further. Let's talk about Aragorn leading the hobbits to Rivendell. Aragorn is clearly the guide. He's clearly the one who's going to be doing everything and telling him how they're going to be marching. Aragorn is also the hunter in that case, too. <laughs> so you have guide and hunter. The hunter is in charge of finding the food. You have a lookout. OK, so Aragorn played all of those parts. Just saying. <laughs> 
<laughs> you have to look out and this is the person who's going to be keeping an eye on things. He's going to be keeping watch. And then lastly, you have a scout. He or she is in charge of setting up camp and opening new trails. So you have these different roles and it's a good to just go ahead and apply those roles. It's kind of like, you know, we do this all the time in a dungeon in D&D. What's your marching order? Well, I'm at front. I'm in the middle. I'm in the back. It's a very similar idea, except now we have specific tasks that they're going to be doing. And then you go on your journey. Mm -hmm. There's things that can affect your journey, difficult terrain, difficult weather. Yeah, but but the basics are just like, hey, we're going to go to to I we're going to go. We got to cross this mountain, and I think that we should go south through the gap of Rohan. And someone else is like, no, nah, I think we should try and go over the mountain. Yep. And then some idiot is like, maybe we should go under the mountain. Yep. And they leave it up to the ring bearer and he chooses to go under. That's okay. setting that's that's how you set up the journey. You just decide, yeah, we're going to go south and then east. And that's how we'll get to Rivendell. And so then you have things that are going to affect it, like perilous locations. Again, we talked about weather, uh, a wizard on Isengard chanting a blizzard, you know, stuff like that are all going to affect your journey. So they may cause you to make some changes. There are tables in here that you can look at to adjust, uh, make rolls on and so on and so forth. I don't really feel like we need to spend a whole lot of time in this section. What do you guys think? Well, I was going to say, I believe most of the maps are set up by hexes. Um, so as you're doing this, you do plan your path. Uh, you, this is the path that we're going to go. And then those roles, again, will change based upon adventure mishaps or deeds or discovering shortcuts if something good happens. or um, So I, I and, think getting used to the hex system is uh, a little interesting, but it is fairly straightforward. These are our jobs. These are our roles. This is what happened on the journey. Um, and things will come up, but I like, I like maps. I like the, the journey log that they show an example of, of how things are going to go. Um, having the events that are going to come up based upon the roles as well. is cool. I, it's neat. I, I, I'm curious <laughs> to play this part of it from a standpoint of in five E everybody hates the travel phase and I like playing Rangers. So it's like, well, this is when I finally get to do something. And everybody's like, can we just get there in three days? And I was like, yeah, nothing happens. They're like, yay, I did my job. I guess. Walking and, and talking. Yep. And you could make your own maps, but the, at the very end of the book, they have incredibly high quality, well-detailed map in the back. And that is what you're supposed to use for this part of the journey. Yes. Like we can see, you know, each hex is a day of travel. It's going to take five days travel to get there. Like, it's not like being left up. Like, you can you can look at the map. You can just pull it up in the book and take a look. Well, and if you were unlike me and you bought a bunch of add-ons from the Kickstarter, they had a beautiful cloth map that you could choose for the game. Yep. And yeah, I, I didn't get that one for Simbaroom, and I'm kicking myself for. I know, I know, right? I'm kicking myself for it. I wish I had done that. And I'm going to Free League's website right now. I don't think it's something they offer. Yeah. Well, it looks like it's in the starter set. So I will have to open that up and take a look. But yeah, you can't get the special map. Um, no, can't get the special map anymore. The it was also going to nope. be like 50 bucks. So yeah, exactly. And I'd already spent 100. <laughs> yeah. So that's the end of this chapter. 
Uh, then we see a beautiful, beautiful artwork of what has to be Lake Town as we move into the next chapter. Which is the fellowship phase and which is something we don't have a lot of time to, to cover today. It's also just. I think this is oh. the role play time, but yeah, we can. Talk about well, and this is this is the absolute shortest chapter. I think this chapter mm-hmm. is only like seven or eight pages long. Yeah. It's when you heal. It's when you have time to talk. Yeah, and it's and it's this could be like when you like it could be years like you could enter a fellowship phase and it's years have passed since mm-hmm. you've come back to adventure because they talk about like in this section, like the first thing you do in a fellowship phase is set the duration. Then you choose your destination, perform updates, choose undertaking is there's so many things that you can do. This is like what you're doing out of game and between adventures, right? Yeah. I say yeah, that approximately is... once every three fellowship phases, winter comes and basically people just lay low for the winter because you're not traveling. Um, this is a time to grow. And again, a year has passed. You level up during Yule. Um, but it's a good time to gather rumors. What have you been doing in the off season, basically? Uh, mm-hmm. Experience when once you... comes in. Recovery. You can heal some shadow. You've had time to train. Heal scars. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to talk quickly about the fellowship. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's it's your downtime. It's what you can do during your downtime in between, you know, your your adventuring phases before you get back to playing. Yep, there's. Yeah, this is when you get to spend your experience and you do get three experience at the end of every session yep. guaranteed. So and- you're. This is probably like you're supposed to have the time to spend it. So it's kind of when you're supposed to do this. Well, it's really appropriate that we went ahead and decided that we are going to talk about this chapter as it is the shortest chapter. And it is the absolute last chapter that any player should read. Yep. Because now we're getting into lore master stuff. And if you're just going to play the game and you don't want to run a game, this is where you can stop. And typically, as we go through our books, this is where we stop as well, because we know that the majority of our listeners are players. They don't want to focus on the D, the the lore master D, DM GM side of things. So this is where we usually stop as we do our deep dive through the books. That being said, I'd like to go around the room and just get your guys' thoughts on this game as we've done now a fairly thorough dive into these seven chapters. Nolan, we're going to start with you. What are your thoughts on this game? Would you play it? Would you recommend it? Um, I like it. Yes and yes. But Very succinct. <laughs> to, to, to go in more detail with it, this is a game I think that you could play as um, for a very long time. I think there's a lot of opportunities to play through this time period. You could also play through any era, right? And, and I think after playing Lord of the Rings online, saying you can do a bunch of stuff while the ring is heading towards Mordor. There were fights everywhere. You could be in um, Erebor fighting with Dane and, and Bard's grandson, right? During that time period. You could you could play through that. So don't limit yourself to just this era. You could have your tale weave throughout history. Um, I also will say this is the type of game that I could see because you level up after every session. You get experience points. It may not be Yule. You could play this every week and if your friends can't show up, it's very easy to do a two-person thing because of that downtime. So-and-so was wounded. They're going to take an extra 10 days. I don't have time to waste. I've got to get this message to so-and-so in such-and-such place. Who wants to get together and run this errand? Because we know so-and-so has to work. Um, They do have a solo mode that was unlocked. So you could, again, 
play by yourself, which I think would be interesting. But this game tends to lead to, because combat is something that should be not necessarily avoided, but intelligently engaged with, um, unless you have the numbers. So much of stuff is building people, uh, rallying troops. Like, you know, the whole goal of the fellowship was basically to sneak there, to avoid combat. So I think those things there lead to, you could have a lot of fun not ever rolling a combat dice or setting up ambushes or that kind of stuff. So for something that you could play every week, somebody can't make it, you know, so often with D&D, it's like, well, so-and-so can't be here. Let's pause for a month. That's kind of a bummer. So anyway, yes, good game. Uh, Curious to see how it actually plays out, but I like it. And then and the art's fantastic. The world, the lore, I've enjoyed reading it. So that's why we see Gandalf not in every scene, right? Because he couldn't hit work that day. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Had had to go, had to go do his thing. But we yep. do see examples of that stuff. Again, Aragorn was the one that was seeking out uh, Smeagol uh, during that time period. He's the one that figured out what happened, that he was captured and, and ordered. You know, there are stuff that you could do as a ranger. Um, Durin, you know, you could play, or not Durin, um, you know, uh, Thor goes to Khazad-dûm on his own to challenge, you know, and gets killed. Uh, you know, there are things like that where it's like, well, a lot of people do a lot of solo things. It doesn't always work out, you know. I mean, that's not necessarily a smart thing to do if you try to, but it happens, so. Yeah, what happened with Bormir when he went from Minas Tirith to Rivendell? You know, Rivendell is supposed to be really hard to find, you know, and, and the fact that everybody was able to just come right to Rivendell is kind of interesting. But yeah, there there could have been a whole adventure like when you were supposed to go from point A to point B during the fellowship phase that something could have happened. You could be out just grabbing vegetables and all of a sudden you're roped into saving the world, right? So, right. Stealing yeah. vegetables. Sorry. So stealing. Yes. <laughs> Zach? Um, yeah, I'm really excited to, to play this game. Um, I I, I know the mechanics are nice and unique and I find them really, I think they're really weird and I really want to try it out and play it and see how it works. I'm a big fan of player folk um, forward things. Like why have the DM ever roll at all? Just let the, like the play, like the players already know what they need to roll. Um, I think you could also play this to supplement your other games. Where like, you know, if you were if you're the kind of people who you play every week, you know, like maybe once a month you instead do um you play this game uh once a month and you do the fellowship as like play by post. And you don't have to worry about that. You come and you do a journey and maybe a fight or two in person and the rest of the fellowship phase is all online, just posting in Discord. Yeah. Um, yeah, like I think I think there's a lot of options here. There's a lot of things that you can do with this game, even if it's not going to be your like primary game. But I'm excited. I'd really like to play it, give it a shot, you know, come to grips with it, see how it works. Because there's all kinds of fun little stuff. Like I... And as a product, as a book, it's a it's quite the book. Right. I will say that exactly that, Zach, I, I think about like because there's a lot of books that I own that we are never going to play, at least as our main core group. Uh, when I think about this book, you know, and the amount of money that I spent on this book, I have absolutely no regrets because this is a 
beautiful, beautiful book. Just sitting down and flipping through it and looking at the artwork is is wonderful. Looking at the layout is wonderful. Free League did a fantastic job when they put this book together. Just just a wonderful job. I would absolutely recommend this book to anybody for that reason alone. I would also recommend this book because I do think the playability of it, the replayability of it is really high. I think this is going to be, especially if you're a huge, huge Tolkien fan, um, this gives you a chance to immerse yourself in that world instead of just being like me who watches the the movies on repeat. Um, now I actually get to play and, and be engaged or lead a story and be engaged. I think that alone is reason enough to to buy this book. And if you're looking for something different, you don't want to just play D&D. I think this is a great way to continue with the fantasy setting. Yes, it is much lower magic. Um, we don't have all the, the magic missiles and things like that. Although in the books, Gandalf did a lot more magic. <laughs> um, I, I think it's a great game and I think it's very, very well done. And I would recommend it to anybody. All right, guys. Well, that is going to wrap up our little over a month long look at the one ring from Free League. Again, the book is available for purchase on Free League's website. Uh, you can also buy it, uh, the PDF version on Drive Through RPG. Uh, if you are interested in getting Free League games in your lo friendly local game store, like I was actually talking with Halen down at Puzzles yesterday, asking him about Free League. He told me he thinks he can get them through Alliance. Uh, so he's going to be looking into that. And we actually might see, I'm going to try and talk him into letting us do stuff like uh, Merkborg, for example, highly recommend it, and then put our name on it and, you know, have a little display of puzzles there. I'm going to try and convince him to do that. Nice. <laughs> or as heard about on our show. Uh, so, yeah, I, I am encouraging Halen to look into some free league stuff. Uh, I know he does do some D&D &D and some fate and, and a little a few other games, but uh, hopefully he can get some of these other RPGs in there as well. So I don't have anything else. Do either of you have anything else before we sign off for the day? Not I not. No. OK, well, I have a house to get cleaned up because we are indeed playing D&D today after like the six week time off. So I will see you both in a little bit. And for everybody else that is listening, thank you so much for listening. We will see you next time. Bye, everybody. Bye.